When you were a kid, what was the object you would cling to? You know, the object you would not let go of. Was it the blankie? Any blankie people here? Yeah, the pacifier? You know, a favorite stuffed animal, a G.I. Joe figurine, anyone? For me, it was the bottle, you know, and the blankie. I actually had two things that my mom could not pry from my hands. Uh, Eventually, I gave up the blankie, but I would not give up the bottle. I would just walk around, as you can see, with it dangling from my mouth. Uh, But, you know, as you get older, it's time to give up childish things. So when I turned 16, I finally put my bottles away. Now, we naturally have this inclination to cling to things that give us a sense of comfort or a sense of control or a sense of security, things that make us feel safe. And at first glance, looking at Christianity, the belief in the resurrection, faith altogether, it looks like it's the Christian spiritual equivalent of a safety blanket. You know, Christians have their faith for a sense of security and comfort and control. There's some truth to that. And from the outside looking in, it can look a little childish at times. It's, uh, it's not surprising. Some people say, look, look, between you and I, Alistair, and this happens all the time, you don't really believe this Jesus thing, do you? Like, I know it makes your life better and all that, but, like, at the end of the day, like, you're just going through the motions. I say, no. And they, they look at me and they say, this just seems childish. Like, there's evidence that shows you should put this away. This is part of the past. Even on the first Easter, Jesus said to the first person that witnessed him, do not cling to me. We just heard that reading. So why is it that Christians still cling to this idea of the resurrection after all this time? So the big idea I want to explore this morning is this. It's not that Christians cling to the resurrection. It's that the resurrection has taken a hold of us. And as we explore this big idea, I think there's two questions worth asking. Would we have eyes to see the risen Jesus if he stood right in front of us? Would we even see him? And if he's there, what difference does it make? So open your Bibles with me to John chapter 20. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, everything will be on the screen. Uh, We're going to read verses 20 through uh, 15. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and she wept. She stood, stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in there. White, sitting where the body of Why are you weeping? And she told them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. I think a lot like Mary, we can struggle to make sense of the empty tomb. This isn't an unusual response, and like her, we try to find the most natural and obvious explanation. For Mary, she said, someone must have taken the body. And we decide for ourselves. We say, it's a fable. It's made up. The followers of Jesus concocted this story to keep the movement alive once the founder died. And hear me out. If the disciples were going to make up a story, they would have made up a better story than this one. Mary would not have been the first to find the empty tomb in a fake story. You might be wondering why. Well, let's listen to Celsus. He was a Greek philosopher in the second century, and he wanted to discredit the Christian movement, and so he wrote this. 
Christianity can't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection are based on the testimony of women. And we all know women are hysterical. Okay, Celsus. But in the time when the New Testament was written, and even into the second century when Celsus wrote that quote that kept him perpetually single, uh, women had a very low social standing. So low, in fact, that they couldn't even testify in a court of law because their testimony wasn't considered trustworthy. So you see, it would be of absolutely no advantage whatsoever for the early church to create a story where the first witness is a woman. Yet the authors of the Gospels kept this detail. Why? we got to assume it's what happened. It's what actually took place. You see, John, he doesn't rewrite history to try to make the resurrection more sellable or more sensible. He tells it as it is, and it was Mary who was the first to encounter the risen Lord. But you are in good company if you still want a more natural and obvious explanation for the empty tomb. You know, maybe it's mistaken and things just got out of control. You know, Mary thought the body was taken. Let's look at how this conclusion held up for her. You know, John writes that she brought uh, Peter and, and him to the empty tomb and said, the body's gone, and they marveled and they went home. But Mary, she stayed behind, and she stood outside the tomb weeping. And this is mentioned three times in the passage. She's weeping. We don't want to miss this. Mary is emotionally bereaved. It could be translated, she's wailing. We can try to imagine her situation. I'm not sure if we can. If a close friend, someone close enough that you even considered them family, if this person you love was killed and then buried, and then the next day you went to visit the graveyard to pay your respects, and they had been dug up and their body was gone, it's unfathomable to imagine, let alone to be in a state of grief and try to comprehend what has happened to your friend. Weeping, wailing, all of us would do it. Now, the thing is, Jesus wasn't just a close friend of Mary. They weren't married, despite what Dan Brown would like to tell us. Uh, but Mary, she was a devoted follower of Jesus. Tradition holds that she was a prostitute. But the scriptures are actually Luke's gospel is that Jesus cast seven demons out of Mary. This is what we know about her. She had a profound experience and salvation moment with Jesus. And ever since that, she followed Jesus and along with a few other women, uh, provided out of their own means for Jesus financially. She was essentially a benefactor, one of the first benefactors of the gospel movement. Her commitment level was high. But her commitment wasn't to the movement. Her commitment was to Jesus. And when Jesus was crucified, his 12 disciples abandoned him. But who do you find at the foot of the cross? Mary, Mary Magdalene, a few other women who stood and watched Christ die and suffer. It's not unlikely then that much of what we have, the testimony about the final words of Christ on the cross, come from Mary Magdalene herself and the other Marys that stood at the cross. You see, Jesus, he had reached so deeply into her life and utterly changed her that her affections were captured. She was in love with Jesus. She loved him enough to follow him and leave everything behind, to sacrifice for him. She loved him enough to stand by him in his humiliation and crucifixion. But now Mary stands by herself outside of an empty tomb, weeping in grief and confused. 
trying our best to explain it. Maybe the body has been moved. How do you make sense of that? And then two angels appear. And there's no indication whatsoever that Mary understands what's happening. She can't wrap her head around it, so she treats them like ordinary people. Look at verse 13. The angels ask her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. Then in verse 14, John writes, Having said this, Mary turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener. And she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. Angels and the risen Jesus appear to Mary. What more could you ask for if you wanted to be convinced of this whole Christianity thing? This would be pretty awesome. But all Mary initially sees are two men and a gardener. And I love how certain paintings capture this. You know, clearly it was Jesus having a shovel that just totally threw Mary for a loop. <laughs> now, we can't, con- we, we don't know. The text doesn't tell us why she didn't recognize Jesus or the angels. But it does invite us to think about it. Because what happens to Mary happens to other people in the Gospels too. The first time they encounter the risen Jesus, they don't recognize him. He's the same, but he's different. He's alive, but with a new sort of life. He appears as a stranger, but then the Lord. What's this all about? Sometimes we can't see the risen Jesus because what's happening in us and around us impairs our sight. You see, in the case of Mary, we can't underestimate her grief. She's grieving. She's witnessed A horrific death. That's hard enough. No one would be emotionally stable after seeing what she saw. I don't know if you know this, but physical symptoms often accompany grief. Sleeplessness, exhaustion, disorientation, even pain. And so she's already grieving and mourning. She can't see through her tears. But then on top of it, Christ's body is gone. And she's she's got this gut-wrenching grief with confusion about what's happening around her. How could she possibly see what's before her? If we were in her place, we wouldn't see angels in Jesus. We too would see ordinary people in a garden. You see, this serves us as an important reminder that we cannot underestimate what's happening in and around us and its ability to impact our ability to see Jesus at work in our lives and in the world. And so we have to ask ourselves, what might be going on in my life or around me that might be impairing my sight of Christ? It's a challenging question because we wouldn't actually know, would we? Mary doesn't initially know that she's not seeing Jesus. You don't know what you don't know. And so what could it be? Well, in our context, for starters, it could be depression. I can't trust my perception of things. In fact, I actually have to choose to distrust my perception. Even when life feels meaningless and purposeless, and where I don't always feel like God is near, I have to choose not to trust these thoughts, but to trust the witness of the scriptures. What I'm feeling and experiencing impairs my ability to see Jesus. Suffering can have the same effect. Because it often raises the very difficult and answerless question, how could God let this happen? Like Mary, it can be grief. Grief can profoundly affect our ability to see God. But it's not always negative things. Sometimes it's good things. Success can impair whether or not we see Jesus at work. Abundance can impair whether we see Jesus at work. You know, when we have everything we need and everything we want, where we have the ability to get those things if we don't have them, 
apathy can set in. You don't even ask the question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? You don't see how it benefits your life. You see, your abundance and your success can impair your ability to see Jesus present in your life. All of these things, they can affect us. And whether your life is in shambles or you want for nothing, what's happening in and around us can distort what we see. We see this in Mary. We can stand outside of the empty tomb and get so caught up in what's missing that we don't see what's present in front of us. And so we start looking for the most natural explanation because we're totally missing it. And we all do this with the resurrection. This is true if you've never believed in it at all or if you've believed in it for a long time. Because functionally, day after day after day, do you live as if Jesus is alive right now? How often does this reality stay central and defining as much as gravity? How are we to come to our senses then? That's the question I think we need to be asking. How are we to see the truth of the resurrection? How are we to live in this new reality that's burst forth from an empty tomb? Well, how did Mary come to her senses? You see, even though Mary can't see what's standing right in front of her, it doesn't change that Jesus is standing right in front of her. It's the same for us. Just because we don't see it or we don't always see it, it doesn't change the reality. Now, Mary, she's in the depths chooses to appear to first, and this is significant. Dostoevsky uh, shed some light on this. He wrote in Crime and Punishment, the darker the night, the brighter the stars. The deeper the grief, the closer is God. The cross has taught us that God is not unacquainted with grief. He doesn't stand at arm's length from the world. He enters right into the suffering and the mess. The deeper the grief, the closer is God. You see, Mary, she's grieving heavily, and there, there you find the risen Jesus. Life, it's burst forth from an empty tomb. It changes everything, and yet the first place Jesus goes to is the place where there's mourning. He goes to comfort the grieving. You see, when our own circumstances cloud our perception or, or our assumptions and explanations make it hard for us to see reality, it doesn't change that Christ is with us. But what does it take for Mary to snap out of it? Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Mary. It's so hard to imagine the, like, the tone that might have come out of Christ's lips. Mary. But also a, a, a waking her up kind of tone. Mary. Every emotional element of Christ's heart for her. Mary. Something about hearing her name brings her into the fullness of his presence. There's power in hearing her name. If you don't believe me, just ask Destiny's child. Why would they sing, say my name, say my name. No one is around you. Say, baby, I love you. You can run and game. Now you know why my music career didn't work out. But if you're worried someone's been running game, whatever that is, you want the reassurance of hearing your name, right? Apparently you don't. But, you know, as... As kids, we know the power of hearing our name. We know the power of our hearing your name. If your mom or dad calls you by your nickname, you can pick it out even in a crowd. If I was in a crowd and I heard, Boyke, it's Afrikaans for boy. That could be any boy, but I would know the voice. I would know it's my parents. 
But you also know there's a difference between hearing your nickname and hearing your first, middle, and last name in consecutive order. If I hear Alistair Yosemite Stern, uh, I'm called fully into the present moment and precisely into what I've done wrong. Now you're all wondering if that's my middle name. It's not. Uh, Brian with a Y. Uh, But here's the thing. I don't just know the sound of their voice. I know the authority of their voice. And I know that the way in which there's the way they say my name, I know what it means. As a parent, I know the power of, of saying Ansley's name. She can be having a tantrum. She can be having a meltdown because she can't have another lopsicle, which is a popsicle, uh, before bed. Uh, but sometimes I can, I can hold her and, and I can say, Ansley, and, and get her to look at me. Ansley. It has a remarkable effect. 25% of the time, she calms down. <laughs> she, 5% of the time, does nothing at all because I'm not Jesus. But Jesus, he says, Mary, Mary brings her to her senses. She knows this voice, but she also knows the way he says her name. John writes about this early in his gospel. Consider John chapter 10. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they'll listen to my voice. We see this truth here, don't we? We see it. Mary was confused up until the point of hearing her name come from Jesus' lips. Jesus says, Mary. And it cuts through her grief. It cuts through her wrong conclusions. It gets to her heart. It pulls her fully into the present moment with the risen Lord. Nothing is the same. There's no dead body. He's alive. He's alive. You see, knowing the power of the resurrection, it's not this abstract proposition that we assent to. It's an encounter, a deeply personal encounter that turns your world upside down. If God raises the dead, nothing can be the same. But I want to pause here for a second because I I realize some of you might actually be a little discouraged. Maybe you've never heard Jesus audibly call your name. That's not the point of the passage. This was a great gift to Mary. But what it means for us is that Jesus knows exactly what it will take to help us see his present risenness. He knows what it will take to help you see that he's standing before you. Whether Jesus says your name or you feel the personal implications and weight of his death and life for you, it clicks, it hits home, a light bulb goes off. And you get it. And you see that Jesus has been standing where he's been standing all along, right in front of you. And he's alive and he's happy to see you seeing him. And so Jesus, he'll speak to each of us differently. But know this, he knows exactly and specifically how to speak to you. The result is the same. You'll recognize his voice. And the resurrection becomes not merely an idea, but a very present reality. She hears her name. She sees the risen Jesus before her very eyes. And then he speaks to her. But what he says is a little uh, confounding. Look at verse 17 here. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The text implies that Mary grabbed a hold of Jesus. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to touch him and make sure he's real? 
If he's back from the dead, wouldn't you want to grab a hold of him and embrace him? It makes all the emotional sense in the world that she clings to him. Her grief is overcome in an instant. And now in joy, she grabs a hold of Jesus. But Jesus says, do not cling to me. Man. But it's not an insult. Jesus, he's not being aloof. He's not withdrawing from Mary. No, 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 no. C.S. Lewis, I think, gets this bang on. In the last book of the Chronicle of Narnia, the last battle on the last page, spoiler alert, (laughs) Lewis writes this. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. We can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Mary hasn't even got to chapter 1 yet. Jesus is saying to her, Mary, the best is yet to come. It still gets better because I will ascend and return to my Father, which means that I won't be localized in this moment. I will be everywhere. I'll be present with everyone. That's why Jesus says, don't hold on to me right now. It's, get, it's going to get better still. Instead, he instructs her. He says, go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And if you've been wondering, what's the big deal about the resurrection? If Jesus is really alive, what does it mean? Here it is. Here's the answer. I was... <laughs> Timing. Uh, I was once hired uh, to be a touring musician in a band called Lithic Blue. You've never heard of them. Uh, you won't find any music online. I double-checked. And uh, they, they paid me to go on tour for this album they wrote called Bring Me My Monocle, I Want to Look Rich, which is a fantastic album name. And I was playing guitar, and I was just I was filling in for them. It was a three-month tour across Canada. And uh, I think this was in 2004. Uh, come a long way, I suppose. Uh, now, whenever on the road you have a lot of time to talk, and if they were talking about their future, I'd always say, you guys. You know, I'd say, you. I, I, and near the end of the road, uh, I, we were chatting, and I accidentally said, we. And my friend Martin, he just stopped. He's like, you finally said, we, this whole time. It's always been, you guys, you guys, you, you, you. I was apparently one of them, finally. That doesn't mean I wanted to be, you know. What was I inheriting by being we with them? You know, a rusty van, barely 500 CDs sold, debt, sleeping on floors. You know, I'll stick to the you and me categories. But when mine became ours, when Julia and I were married, I was elated. I wasn't just inheriting her stuff. She had nothing. She was a grad student. I was joining her. It was fundamentally a new way of relating to her which gets us to the real meaning of the resurrection. Jesus is my becomes yours. And what he offers is so, so good. It's a fundamentally new way of relating to God. What is it? My father, my God becomes your father and your God. We're so used to hearing God being the father that we're a little desensitized how revolutionary this statement is. In the Gospel of John, Jesus speaks frequently of my father or how he's going to return to his father. He actually speaks about the father in reference to himself 120 times. In the Gospel of John, this is the only place 
only here where his father becomes our father. The triune God becomes our God. Everything is changed. When we put our faith in Jesus, we inherit God himself as our father. What happened? To put it simply, Jesus died in our place. He put our sins to death. He removed everything that separates us from God on the cross. And he sets us right with his father. He saves us when we could not save ourselves. And this is the gospel. When we put our faith and our trust and give our lives to Jesus, God becomes our father. A good, good father who, because of what Jesus did, saves us from ourselves and gives us life forever, starting now. And I love verse 18, Mary Magdalene. She went out and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, that he had said these things to her. At the beginning of the passage, remember, Mary, she's standing and she's weeping. She's in grief, but no more. With joy, she goes and she announces her posture uh, and understanding has radically She's the first proclaimer of the resurrection. The father isn't just Jesus' father. Jesus has made it so that he's our father. The living God, the creator of the universe, is for you and loves you with the same love that he has for his son. Mary becomes the apostle to the apostles. She becomes the first preacher of Easter. She starts what has never been stopped, passing on the message and the good news that Jesus is alive. Nothing can be the same. Because if this is true, how can you not proclaim it? How can you not lose your mind over this reality a little bit? You see, it's not that Christians cling to the resurrection. It's that the resurrection is taking a hold of us. It's that Jesus is alive and grabbing our hearts and pulling us into the love of the Father. That's why we can't let it go. We're children of God. And because he died and was raised for us, Every chapter is better than the one before. We haven't even got to chapter one yet. Jesus is alive, people. Jesus is alive. This is not an abstract truth. He is standing. That is a reality that changes everything and will not let you go. Do you see him here? He's risen. He's with us now. Ask him and he'll open up your eyes.